This episode of Tinfoil Swans is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Food & Wine's Tinfoil Swans, a weekly podcast serving up inspiring, touching, hilarious, revealing conversations with some of the biggest names in the food and beverage world, and we hope giving you plenty to savor even after the episode is over. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Executive Features Editor at Food & Wine, and I am eternally fascinated by how successful, creative people become, well, themselves. Were the moments, influences, missteps, pep talks, and decisions big and small that got them where they are today. For a self-described introvert, David Chang is, in many ways, an open book. In addition to his 2020 memoir, Eat a Peach, the Momofuku founder has written multiple cookbooks, hosted and produced Netflix shows like Ugly Delicious and Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner, and Hulu's The Next Thing You Eat. He created the major domo Media Empire, co-founded Lucky Peach Magazine, hosts the Dave Chang Show on the Ringer Network, launched a wildly successful international restaurant empire and consumer goods line under the Momofuku umbrella, and he can start a multi-day news cycle with an offhand comment about rotisserie chicken or how to cook a burger. The man is not short of opinions, but sometimes these opinions get David Chang in trouble. They certainly did when he was a young kid being forced into training to be a pro-level golfer despite his complete lack of interest in the sport. Chang bucked the wishes of his family, got a degree in religion, left the country, and decided, to the great horror of his dad, who never wanted his son to work in restaurants like he had, to become a chef. Why not pursue the worst possible ideas, he told himself, because he didn't think he was going to live past 35. Spoiler alert, Chang is 45 now, still with no shortage of opinions and feelings, and much calmer than he used to be. Or at least he's trying. Welcome to episode six of Tinfoil Swans, David Chang and the worst possible idea. Hey, Dave. Hey. <laughs> you know the drill. David Chang, who were you when you were 10 years old? I was playing a lot of competitive golf back then. Not necessarily against my will, but certainly influenced heavily by my dad. And the only thing I probably wanted to do was to do other things other than golf, whatever my friends were doing back then. Did you care about food at this point? Like, where's food in your life? Where's... No, I mean, food was stuff that I would eat in between 36 holes. <laughs> at the turn, yeah, like my first quesadilla was at like playing golf and chicken fingers, a lot of chicken fingers, buffalo wings and golf type of fare for sure. And the only food I probably looked forward to were the holidays, Thanksgiving and New Year's Day. That was really a big, big eating thing that we'd look forward to effectively like a potluck with all of my aunts on my dad's side. And these little white bread uh, shrimp rolls, they've actually been in a food and wine. I think a food and wine recipe, I could be wrong. I'll look these up. Yeah. So did you make this at all? Did the men in your family cook? No. Well, then this leads to something I'm actually fascinated by this topic. I brought this up on social media recently to ask out of curiosity, dynamics of eating in a family, who gets served first or who gets to eat first? What did that look like? You know, I can't recall too many times eating together as a mm -hmm. family, right? I mean, I can think about the holiday meals, but that was usually the kids eating mm -hmm. first. There was a lot of prayer and a lot of religious stuff going on too. So that's what I remember. I don't have any like Christian Madeleine moments as a kid. I can't tell you like, oh, I had an oyster and it changed my life forever. I knew I wanted to be a chef, right? Like it wasn't like that at all. And the food memories that I had were definitely of my mom and um, cooking. And also most of my food memories were quite negative. Mm, same. <laughs> because it was more like 
being made fun of for what we ate and what I ate. And my older brother, I have two older brothers, one that was four years older than me, really influenced what I ate because he would come home being vilified because he was probably in middle school or high school and like refused to eat certain things, refused to eat the things that my mom would cook. And I didn't know any better. And it was the first time that was like, oh, right, rebellion. And to this day, my older brother doesn't eat kimchi or anything Korean other than kalbi and some of the marinated meat. So food was really something that my mom and my family, for I think for a lot of immigrant families, they express themselves through love, love through food and cooking. No, unequivocally, yes, right? Hard to say I love you, but very easy to make you a dish or something that was full of love. Very clear to me. But overall, I don't have any food memories other than like what happened during the holidays and my older brother basically really influencing me as to like, oh, maybe I shouldn't eat kimchi and things like this. It's interesting, like operating out of rebellion in either direction, I very much will embrace thing this thing or I very much won't. And did you find that like in your dynamic with your brothers, did you want to emulate or be nothing like each one of them? I was just mostly older brother of fear, right? I just don't want to get beaten up. My older sister is great, but I was so terrified of her. Yeah. I was a very bad younger sister, like bad at being deferential and all that stuff to my older sister. My brothers were much older. How old was your sister? Uh, about two years older than me. Yeah. I was much younger than my brother, so they were terrifying to me. So were they pushed into doing anything like you were into golf? Does each one get a, a different particular what were theirs? My oldest brother was golf. I, the oldest of my family is a sister, but it was not no golf for her, but academics. Mm. She was like a straight A student. My oldest brother was probably the best. He played a lot of competitive golf collegiately, things like that. My middle brother, young, was real black sheep. Mm -hmm. He did not want to play anything competitive golf. How'd that go for him? <laughs> he made my life a lot easier. In retrospect. <laughs> Wait, so we have multiple rebellious Changs. <laughs> yeah. Everyone thought he was the black sheep rebellious one. No, it turned out that I was. He just paved the way. <laughs> Bless that. Like my older sister is a very stubborn person. So she definitely plowed through a lot of things for me. I mean, we are very, very different human beings, but that certainly helped a lot. So going out to restaurants and seeing who a chef is, you're not watching food TV, you're not doing any of these. When is the first time that you sort of realize like, oh, there are restaurants and somebody has to make the food here and this is a chef person and hey, maybe that's something I'm interested in. It's funny because my dad, when he came to this country, worked in restaurants for around 30 years. Whereas as a dishwasher, handyman, busboy, server, front of the house manager, never worked in the kitchen because he always said it was way harder. <laughs> and I rarely saw him when I was younger because he was always at the restaurant. And it never dawned on me that he didn't cook. Mm. The delineation of what was a chef and what wasn't really didn't matter or didn't register at all. And the restaurants we would go to, open kitchens didn't exist back then. My earliest food memories are going on a bus with my grandfather. We'd eat Japanese food, right? And I'd eat sushi and everything because he was effectively a Japanese Korean man. A lot of history of that in my life with on my mom's side of the family. I think one of the reasons why I have such an affinity for all things Japanese cuisine was because of him. But that took a long time to sort of remember all that stuff, right? I think for the most part, my dad, ironically, was in the restaurant business, but never impressed upon me anything about food. And he worked his entire life to make sure that I wouldn't work in food. We would go to a lot of Korean restaurants and Chinese restaurants, but the kitchen was never seen. It was always front of the house because most of his friends were restaurant owners. So we'd see them. So if anything, my idea of a restaurant was that the maitre d' or the 
owner of the restaurant did everything. I had no idea that there was a chef back there doing everything. So when did that door get opened for you? I don't know. I think, you know, probably it was when, and I think a lot of chefs of my generation will probably agree with this, coming home from school and then watching PBS, Great Chefs of Europe, Great Chefs of France, Great Chefs of Southwest, East Coast. Like, And I think they had like every region except for like Africa and Asia covered. That was highly influential. That was the real show that gave me an idea like, oh my God, this is a whole different thing that I know nothing about. And my dad doesn't know any of these kinds of people in the restaurant business, right? My idea of the best kind of restaurant growing up was a steakhouse. And actually, I think that's the way most people in America think is fine dining. You know, that's funny thing, it's come full circle. Five, 10, 20 years, I'd probably say, oh, that's a joke. Should never be fine dining as a steakhouse. Now I'm like, you know what? If people have a great meal and it's expensive for them and they think it's fine dining, it's fine dining. Who cares what anyone else thinks? And I'm thinking some of the highest end places in New York right now are like Korean steakhouses. Did you ever in your wildest dreams, like as a kid, think that that would be something that would come to pass? Where the food that you are being reviled for, being made fun of for, or your brothers are, or whatever, like melds with this popular thing that, that you feel is like this pinnacle of dining, that they would meet somewhere? No, not at all. In fact, you know, now that I live in Los Angeles, I always think that if I grew up here, I would not become a chef, or if I did, I wouldn't have anything to say, because there's very little to no resistance about eating Asian food in general. And I think even though it's 2023, I feel like it probably would have been the same or, or much better 25, 30, 35 years ago. So I think having grown up and I remember things like bringing keen to school, like the Korean seaweed snacks that people eat that are omnipresent. You can even get like a Dwayne Reed. There's like a, a package of it next to the hand sanitizer at checkout, right? I remember like getting made fun of like, oh my God, you eat weeds? Mm. These moments where you're just being made fun of and I'm like, this is delicious. I know it's delicious. And those are moments in time that wound up being extremely impactful for me because it helped shape a food philosophy much later. Like you can't sort out, nor can you really figure out what the narrative is and the trajectory or connecting the dots to much, much later. So in a lot of ways, I'm not happy that I experienced it, but I was able to do something with it. Yeah. And I think that you are probably a large part of the reason why there has been this culture shift, because in addition to being a person who cooks that, you yourself and your image and everything have been tied to it as well. And that's, I suppose that ties into what we were talking about before. There's restaurants, but people weren't thinking about who is cooking the food back there. Who are the faces? Who are the hands? Who are these people? And now we're living in this age, we've been through several cycles of the celebrity chef, of the chef who is as much of the draw as the food itself. So when did you find yourself along the way having that inextricable tie to the food that you were cooking? It wasn't just the food as a product. It was you too. It was a lot of moments going to cooking school, French cooking school, and asking the chef, can we learn how to make a sauce of pork stock? Mm -hmm. And they're like, Pork broth is for savages or something similar to that. And also just being reinforced time and time again that anything that wasn't French or Italian or specifically continental American was seen as garbage. It just was. And it was just, quite frankly, full of racism, whether it was MSG, whether it was the smell of kimchi or fermented products, like all the fundamental products that are super cool right now. It was not very cool back then. And in fact, you were like vilified for it cooking it or using it, the smell, anything that was pungent or a lot of spices that have a lot of smells, those were in the media 
and made fun of, quite frankly, right? And a lot of this goes back to the Chinese Immigration Exclusion Act of Asia. It's, it's like deeply rooted. I don't blame anybody for that. It's just the way it happened. You've been great about bringing this conversation to light about the, the racism that went into these decisions and the marketing language that was used around a lot of these things, and especially MSG and all of that. So yeah, you can blame somebody for this. <laughs> and just seeing like, wait, like why is the restaurants that I'm going to, these noodle shops, mom and pop shops, why do they never get the attention? But they always get relegated to like the cheap eat section, et cetera, et cetera. And I just was like, well, that's not cool. And then I think traveling the world, getting to work abroad, all had a significant impact. And there are many, many moments, too many to sort of talk about right now. But it was like one was going to London. At the time, Wagamama's is sort of like a huge chain right now. But at the time, Alan Yao only had one. And I'd never seen anything like that before, where a bunch of, quite frankly, white people were eating noodles. And I was like, what? What's going on here? That's crazy. It was cool. It was sexy. And it was of value. But like, it was very, in my opinion, not the kind of food that I would want to make. But I didn't even know. I was like 19 years old when I tasted that. Then I go around, lived in Japan a couple times, lived in Korea, worked there. And I'm eating delicious things cheaply and affordably. I remember eating a day in Beijing for 75 cents, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it was like amazing. And then I start to see like the same foods that people would never care about growing up. Their queue is like three to four hours long in Japan, this thing called Baranya. So the same kind of passion people would talk about, because 30 years ago, the real communities of food, foodism or foodie, like the word foodie didn't even exist, was based on pizza, barbecue, and hamburgers mm -hmm. and cheese sticks. It was really limited to those four items. And people would get in huge arguments and you could have, like, if you go to Pat's and Gino's 30 years ago, there was a massive line. Well, there was pizza. I remember Armand's Pizza in D.C. would have a massive line. So I just would see this and be like, wait, people are waiting in line for this bowl of noodle soup with more fervor and more love and more passion than anything I'd ever seen in America. So I'm like, I taste it. It's delicious. Well, why can't this also work here? Why can't almost all of these things that are I think are extremely delicious, not just Korea, not just Japanese, but around the world. Why are they not also loved equally? And it was a beginning of my idea that everybody wants to eat delicious food. I mean, there's legitimate cultural things. Like I'm not going to eat skinny and like fermented shark. I'm not going to eat that. Not for me, right? I just came back from Taiwan and I don't like stinky tofu. I actually can't. It's just not for me. So there's certain foods that I don't think are universally going to be loved, but are deeply rooted in the culture. And I think that's so important. But there's a lot of other things that are delicious that everyone would love. And maybe they're not loved because of what reason. So it gave me this idea that what is a bad idea? Why is a dish not loved or anything, any cultural artifact, why is it not loved? Maybe because there's empirical evidence to support it or more than likely it was some idiot or some organization, or somebody that said something stupid, and it became urban myth, and it just perpetuated itself, right? Like, that's a lot of how I thought about it. I remember thinking, I love music, I love literature, I love movies, and if you look at particularly music, everything that was sort of underground became overground. Most of American music is black, mm -hmm. right? At its origin in black American history, and then it becomes popular. But if you think about it, Still to this day, that's a pretty difficult relation to understand or to talk about. And I thought maybe all of these differences, at least from my eyes, 
because one of the things that when I, that I was living so much abroad, I was like, I just wanted to be an expat. I didn't feel like I belonged in it. Coming back, I was like, maybe food can be the vehicle, much like music was. Maybe food can be a way for people to change their ideas about a group of people or a whole genre of cuisine. That was a hell of a lot of anger on my end, like a lot. We'll be back with more from David Chang after the break. This episode of Tinfoil Swans from Food & Wine is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. As for freshly sliced sweet bees, honey barbecue chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Tinfoil Swans. Today, I'm chatting with David Chang. You know, the question I asked you who you were 10, when you were 20, you're having these experiences, but you'd been raised in seeing these people on PBS, seeing the kinds of cuisines that were upheld there. Did you see yourself in there at all? Did you see room for yourself? And did you expect that that was a medium? No, absolutely not. Listen, like, there's a lot of Asian-American chefs. I'm really close with most of the Korean-American chefs of my age in their 40s. We all say the same thing. We all wanted to cook French food because that was established as good. We wanted nothing to do with Korean food or Asian cuisine. And I think that was reinforced by how we were ready. I'm so ecstatic that many people today that are entering the profession, they don't have that worry. They can choose what they want to learn and what they want to cook and what restaurant they want to be at because like, there was no option back then. And as you said, today in New York City, some of the best, most progressive Korean food is there. So that's like, makes me so happy. Oh, you went to French culinary and that's now ICE. And that's actually a couple floors away from where I'm sitting right now. Yeah. I got a degree in religion. I taught English in Japan. And that was a seminal moment for me because that was my first taste of really beautifully made artisanal ramen. But I never thought that that would mean anything to me right at the time. You never do. Any of these things that are throwaway moments, you never think they're going to be impactful later. And there's a lot of things that happened when I came back. September 11th happened. I had three really close friends die. Um, so I was in a bad place. And I just was like, you know what? I'm just going to do something I'm not supposed to do. Not supposed to by who? By my dad. And also just the way I was raised and the schools that I went to, right? Private schools. I went to like a really I mean, preppy, a lot of wealthy people there that want to become bankers. Everyone became an investment banker. I remember someone saying like, where are you in the summer? And I was like, what are you talking about? What is that? Summer as a verb. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? What do you mean? 
<laughs> my house in Virginia. What do you like? What do you like? There's like that lockdown. Like, who are your people and where do they summer? <laughs> exactly. So, like, I made friends with a lot of the people, and I remember, like, you're committing like social suicide by becoming a cook because that's just like not what you do. I interviewed Chuck Papan recently. He's like, we are the lowest of the low, the potato peelers. Yeah, people don't understand. At the time, for many years, people that became a cook either were coming back from the military or out of prison or immigrants. That was the only job. Those were the three buckets. I remember coming to college degree, talking with our good friend Mark Nora at Harvard. I remember they saw that like I graduated college and they were like, hey, college boy, college kid, <laughs> you're smart. Do our inventory. Do the math on all these stuff. I said, what are you, what are you talking about? And I looked at it. And I was like, wait. Almost everyone here went to CIA. Nobody went to a four-year college. I was like the only one at the time. And like that just shows you how different it was back then. Today, I think most of the people, actually more people go to a four-year college than they go to culinary school that work in kitchens. So it was not something that I think a lot of people thought was a career option. Oh, yeah. It's sort of where you go when you have exhausted the options. And I'm thinking about that particular restaurant at that particular time and all of the people who came out of craft, legendary lineup of people along the way. But also, I think a lot about all the people who came out of there and how they developed in opposition or as influenced by that. And I want to go back to where you said anger and to our friend Marco Canora, who you and I have both known for a long time. I think you longer than me. And I don't think you'd mind me saying this at all because we've talked about this before. An angry, angry dude who is not now, who is the most chill, lovely, happy person now. Was that fostered for you while you're working in this environment where you're college boy and, and all that? Was it pre-existing? Was it fostered there? Was it celebrated there? I think it's really difficult to talk about in 2023 because it's so difficult to take things out of the context of its day. That's why I want to put it in the context of that particular time so yeah. people understand where we are now. The better the kitchen, the more yelling there was. That was just like, this, this is just what it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, this is just how it is. That part wasn't the angst for me. But I think that I see the anger for people when they are in the position of where it's all on their shoulders. That's when it's really difficult to like not go to your default setting, especially when it's sort of been reinforced to just like go to your default setting of rage and anger. And it's rewarded because you get action from that. Exactly. And I'm saying all of this to put it in a cultural context because I talk with a lot of people who are younger than me and you and, and stuff, and they sometimes don't understand where this particular culture came from and how it was rewarded and all of that. And I have seen some like incredibly palpable shift from there. Like I've seen you chill the hell out and I've seen Marco Canora, who I just can't say his name enough because that has long been my favorite restaurant in Manhattan. If you people haven't been to Hearth for a long time, go. And it is food made by a happy, joyful person who is calm. And I've seen that tremendous shift and I have seen the chefs who have come out of there. But at that particular time, to engage in some of these thoughtful practices about food in the way that we do now and entire systems wouldn't have been rewarded in any way. It might have been laughed out of the kitchen, I feel like. No question. How did you get your voice in here? Because you were working at somewhere like that. And I just I very distinctly remember the point of when you started opening your places and you were introducing people to these kinds of foods that had not been celebrated before. What was the shift? How did you go from somebody else's kitchen, somebody else's vision and all of that to having this faith in doing your own and cooking your food? Well, Kat, I didn't. And believe it or not, I'm quite the injurer. 
And I would rather not talk to anybody because it's more comfortable for me, right? And I think I would rather be an extrovert, but I can't. And I was in Wallflower most of my life. So period of my life when I opened up Momofuku Noodle Bar in 2004, I'd been cooking professionally for four and a half years. The reason I did that because I was not accepted. I was an outsider and nobody probably knew anything about me because I was quite quiet. There was no indication that I was going to do anything great. And I totally understand that. And then opening up that restaurant, it was a therapy in a lot of ways for me. But it was also like a mindset where like, I honestly, I was like, I'm doing this because I'm going to be dead pretty soon. And like, I'm going to go hard. I'm going to go so hard that there's no regret when it all ends. And when I say that, I know that may seem total hyperbole, but it wasn't at all. And in a lot of ways, that's how I just sort of act. Open kitchen, 600 square feet, just trying to make ends meet, trying to pay the bills, survive. Nobody wanted to work with me. Not one single person wanted to work for me back then. I literally couldn't find one person until I found Kinobaka on monster.com. None of the culinary sites, because like everybody wanted to work. Per se was opening up, it's Shigalante opening up. True. All of these restaurants that were like, I wanted to work at. Jonathan Bennett was opening, you know, there was all this amazing stuff. Why would anyone work for me? I don't blame anybody. That just added to the rage and it was very difficult. Yeah. So what kept you going during that point? I don't know. Honestly, it was like just survival. Every day was surviving to the next day, to the next day, to the next day. It was a little bit like Groundhog Day. It's like all these terrible things happen, things breaking, putting out fires left and right. And you just keep on going because you don't think it's going to actually be successful. Spoiler alert, it became successful. Was there a moment while you're doing this where you realize that, wait, people are paying attention and maybe this is not a terrible idea and Maybe, wow, I could open up a next place. What is that moment? The only reason we opened up the next place was to pay for health care for everybody. <laughs> that was it. I never once wanted to do fine dining. I've always tried to pursue almost the worst idea possible. <laughs> and we didn't have any investors. I think if I took money, things would have been very differently. I think mostly for the positive. We kept on reinvesting everything back into the team. I think I was probably the lowest paid chef for years because I wanted everyone to get theirs. I was like, what do I have to save money for? It sounds extremely morbid, but I literally didn't think I was going to live past 35. So I was like, who cares? That was just in my head. Let's just go ham and like, we'll see what happens. It sounds so foolish now. I wish I could go back in time and be like, dude, even if it all fails and everything goes bankrupt, everything's going to be okay. And I still have to tell myself that. The things that I cared about then, I didn't care about at all today. What did you care about at the time? Winning. I'm still feeling that. I have competitive desires, but it was like winning, beating everybody that said, you're not going to make it, you suck. And it was that cliche of like, you're not good enough. You personally are not good enough. Your food's not good enough. Your cuisine's not good enough. Your Koreanness isn't good enough. I'm not Korean enough for the Koreans. I'm not American enough for the Americans. It's funny when you say this, when I talked to Kino and Kevin Pouillet and a bunch of the people back then, it was equally so hard, but also the most beautiful time of our lives. I was so present that, God, I can't tell you that what the goals were. Every day I was just super present about what had to happen that day and only that day. And who were you trying to please here? Were you pleasing yourself, a ghost in your head, the customers? I spent so much time with my shrink trying to understand that too. And everything was so surreal. Back then, I was sort of at the center of this storm. Food is good timing, but also like a lot of pressure. It was every move. I mean, I remember like I would do anything and like you either have like a Chang alert. <laughs> and I was like, 
it came, I, you know, made me turn like very like, I don't know what the hell's going on. Is this a simulation? This is really not good for my sanity. So I don't know. When I think about those times, I don't know anything that happened because it just seems like one long day. That makes sense to me. I think I met you for the first time in 2008. Actually, what year did your first book come out? Around 2009, I think, yeah. Okay, so it would have been around 2009. I remember you coming into my office actually to meet with another editor, and you were so quiet. It surprised me because I was thinking about the public sort of persona version of you that I would think about versus like, here is this quiet and thoughtful person in here, and you've written this book, and you seem surprised that anybody would want to pay any attention to you. I found it very endearing, actually. You seemed a little scared, honestly, and I was sort of surprised with that. Granted, you're a person who's written a memoir. All of this is out in the world now, too. But I think also that is a huge amount of pressure to be a public version of someone who people have a lot of preconceptions about versus the reality of you're a dad, you're a person at home, and you were tied to an empire that employs a whole lot of people. I don't know if this has been a direct or palpable mindful shift away from all of these things like, oh, they're David Chang's Momofuku feels like the bigger entity in some ways. Is that deliberate? Yeah, very much. The reason why I've stepped away from the day-to-day operations of the kitchen as well. Like All I know is what I want to be is like spend a little bit more time not working as hard as I used to work. And being a great partner to my wife and be present for my two kids and the things that I cared about 15 years ago, I don't care about as much today. In fact, some I care very, very little because the things are so impermanent and transient. I'm like, it doesn't matter ultimately. And I've always wanted to get better. I've always wanted to understand. And I think by me being so open about it, I think that's really been confusing to a lot of people because most people aren't so open about it. And my life in a lot of ways has been public, so public for many, many years. So... I think it's a desire to sort of step away as much as I can and be a little bit more of the producer, not in the front of anything anymore. And like, maybe never again. I hope that never happens again. Like, probably never. (laughs) What's your relationship with the word perfect? I think I'm only trying to finally get, like, come into my own now, right? Like, I'm getting to be comfortable in my own skin. And perfect to me back then was excellence done at a level... That was European or three Michelin star or something like that. Perfect to me is Michael Jordan. Like you have the best athlete match with the best work ethic and integrity. But then it's like, you know, I was listening to Hassan Minaj say like the best player, the most perfect thing to come out of like that Bulls dynasty was Steve Kerr, not Jordan, because like he was able to like change a culture from the Bulls where it was super intense into a different way that's much more manageable. Like he learned and he grew. I really admire that. So for me, perfect really is less about the physical results of it and more of, can you grow? Can you change? Can you be perfect in your intent? There's a great book by David Epstein called Range. If someone fails in being perfect, maybe that's what they need to be to actually get to perfect. And you can't judge it in that moment. So to me, it's just trying to get a little bit more, a longer lens and a longer time frame to understand anything. So perfect is a very loaded thing for me. I still strive to be it, even though I don't even know what the hell that means. But more than anything, I guess, trying to be less punishing on myself for trying to be perfect. Yeah, it's very easy to get caught up in that. So the way that you might have reacted when you were younger versus now with somebody who did something that you perceived as imperfect, like, have you shifted language for that for somebody else and for yourself? Yeah, I think I've 
just trying to become more empathetic. Right? I think that's what everybody needs to do, particularly people in the hospitality business. You think you have a deep well of it until you realize like there's more angles to understand. It takes a lot of effort to see something from another person's perspective. Yeah. Culturally, we're really terrible at so many of these things <laughs> for ourselves, for other people. Are you able to be gentler with yourself? Has that critique changed? Like, or do you speak to yourself in a kind way? No, but it's better than it was. I think the difference with me versus whether it's kinder, it's not that I'm not necessarily kinder or why I'm laying off myself is because I'm tired. <laughs> You've got two little bitty kids. Yeah. So the result of being tired has caused me to be more forgiving to myself. Yeah. And I was tired before, like way, <laughs> way more tired a lot of ways, right? But I think it's a lot of age and a lot of miles as well, right? And that has caused me to be tired and realizing why I was tired about something is because I cared about something that was so ridiculously stupid. Caring about rankings, stars, position, caring about being cool. It's like so dumb. I think about this all the time. Most of the restaurants that we do or you even visit, they're all still trying to be cool and relevant. It's like United Airlines versus Pan Am. One's out of business and one's not. One wasn't trying to be cool. One was trying to be effective. I just don't want to spend any more time trying to be cool, trying to be relevant. I'd rather be warm than cool any day. <laughs> exactly. And as a person who cares very deeply about you as a person, I'm glad to hear that you're being a little bit kinder. And our friend Guy Fieri has a question for you. He was saying, like, you're a person who's known for being intense and stuff. Do you let yourself have time off? And if so, where do you go and do that? <laughs> <laughs> this is you get your served your medicine back, Dave. <laughs> I just want to say this to that guy. I mean, I remember with being with Tony and I said something stupid about him wearing eyeglasses. I was in the room. <laughs> or sunglasses. And the fact is, it's like, we're all guilty of it, myself included, oh, yeah. of saying something without really knowing about this person at all. And I have never met him in person, but I know a lot of people, including some that do. And he's one of the kindest, gentlest souls. He's always trying to give back and do good. So I apologize to Guy for saying those things, but I think he knew that. And like that guy's been through a lot and that guy's got a lot of pressure. Guy Theory's inspired a lot of people, right? And that's the reality is he's taken a different route, but he's turned more people onto food than just about any other chef. But answering Guy's question, the only time I take off one week a year is to go fishing, fly fishing. And it's a more punishing variety, saltwater fishing for fish called permit fish. You brought up the word perfect. You have to be perfect to catch this fish. And I'm very, 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 very hard on myself. So when I mess up, and the reason is not because I want to be hard on myself, I am completely addicted and attracted. I am an addict to a lot of things, first of all. So I'm addicted to the pain and it's extremely masochistic. But to explain why is when you are in a state of being perfect to catch this fish, in my opinion, it's because you're so present. You're not thinking about anything else. It's very, very Zen Buddhist. The masochism isn't just masochistic. The reward is the times that you can be perfect, you're calm, you're extremely present. If you're not in that moment, if you're thinking about literally anything else, even like the wind, you're more than likely going to mess it up. It decreases your percentage chance of catching this fish. And here's the craziest thing. You can do everything perfect and you will still get rejected by the fish. And that's why I do it. It's extremely frustrating and time consuming to remind yourself like you don't have control over anything you may think you do but it's a painful reminder an expensive reminder these trips are expensive right the one i do every year 
that you have no control over anything. And anything you think you do, it's a, just an illusion. Every time I leave these trips, I always say, I'm never doing this again because it hurts so much. It's never the fish you catch or the fish you don't catch. And that's why I do this trip to remind myself of that feeling every year. I love that. You have to take a masochism vacation. And I think I texted you this, but I just want to say this recorded. That guy told me that you changed his life. He came to New York and had your food and it changed his entire perception of what food could be. Well, it's funny. I think Guy Fieri, how he lives his life is really more of an inspiration of how I need to live my life right now. It's 100% the truth, right? Like, The things he cares about are the things I should spend a lot more time caring about. So, you know. Is there anything you wish I had asked you or that you wish people knew about you? Oh, I don't think I've gotten entirely way too much credit over the years. People should know that it was so many of the people that were doing all the work. And I always viewed any of the accolades I received as a group thing, never as an individual effort. And there's no such thing as an individual effort in the restaurant business or life itself, for that matter. So I'm blessed to have some of the best and brightest working at Momo Food Group. Thank you so much for this. Oh, and actually, I forgot to ask you, what's a tinfoil swan moment to you? What does that mean to you, the concept of the tinfoil swan? It took me a while to think about it, but it's literally the tinfoil swan that's on the dinner table, right? Maybe you can tell me the meaning of that for you. Yeah. For me, it's having this amazing meal and in a place that kind of wants to be fancy, but then you get to take something home and you you loved this thing enough that you want to take something home. And I was really hoping that folks would listen to this and like carry something along with them. Well, it's a lovely, (laughs) lovely name. And I think it would be an awesome song title (laughs) to a a band name. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with David Chang. Be sure to follow Tinfoil Swans on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I listen in the shower. Maybe that's TMI. I listen to podcasts all the time, and I hope you do too. And if you do, you know that we would love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we would really appreciate it. And you can also find us online at foodandwine.com slash tinfoilswans. Thank you so much to our incredible production team, Lottie Le Marie, Dominique Arciero, Jennifer Del Sol, Michael Classic, Amelia Schwartz, Ashley Day, Sean Flynn, and Hunter Lewis. Make sure to come back next week for my interview with Padma Lakshmi. Take care of yourself until then. 